I want to say a tentative word of, it's a real word of thanks, a tentative word of goodbye. Um, as was mentioned a couple times this morning, it, our, the elders at High Point have commissioned us to plant a church in another part of the city. And so it's with joy and anticipation and I think some godly fear. I hope it's godly fear that we intend to launch into that in just a few months. So it's very likely, I think, that this will be the last time I'll have the chance to preach to you. It has been a joy to be with you on a number of occasions over the last few years. You've seen our family grow and get louder, and you've been patient and kind with that family as it's gotten louder over the years. You've been encouraging, you've been attentive, and it has been our pleasure to be able to be with you on a number of occasions. And we pray that God would be gracious to you uh, through the preaching of, of, of God's word, through Samuel, of course, but also through the opportunities that he's given me as well. So we're grateful for this church. We pray for your church regularly at High Point as you prayed for us today, and we will pray for you as well in the church plant as, uh, by God's grace. So thank you. Thank you very much. And if I see you again before then, we'll go through that all again, I guess. Now, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, one of the last books in the Bible. While you're turning there, I wonder if any of us have ever reflected on what happened on July 5th, 1776. All right, so we've, we hear every year about what, happened, what has happened on July 4th. But what happened on July 5th, the day after? Now, so far as I can tell, not much. What happened initially was that they delivered the Declaration of Independence to, to, the, to, the, to, the, uh, to the printer for the Continental Congress. And on July 5th, several of the, the members of that Congress distributed. They sent, that, uh, they sent the copies of the Declaration out to the colonies. I mean, they couldn't just, they couldn't just post it on their blog or tweet about it or post a, a copy of the Declaration on Facebook. It took days, maybe weeks, before some of the colonies even heard about the Declaration of Independence that had been authorized in Philadelphia. I can tell you one thing that surely did not happen. Nobody thought that independence was secure. No one thought that the, that the pathway towards securing that independence would be easy. The Declaration closes with these words of the signers. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They knew that they could spend everything that they had, even shed their own blood. They knew that they could pursue independence with every ounce of energy that they had and still fail in that conflict, that conflict that they were entering into with one of the world's great superpowers Your salvation, your conversion, is something like a declaration of independence. I mean, isn't that a great degree of what baptism pictures? Your baptism, a public profession of your allegiance, a declaration of your allegiance to Jesus? That, that at the same time is a declaration of your freedom from the tyranny of Satan. We're no longer in slavery to sin. We've been buried with it. We are dead to that slavery through baptism and raised up in union with Jesus Christ into a new life. So our baptism, our conversion, is it's a, a declaration that we, that we were free at that time and that we continue to be free. But I wonder if we ever feel like, in the, in the daily grind of life, I wonder if we ever feel like the outcome of that declaration, if the outcome is ever in doubt, just as the outcome of that declaration some 200-plus years ago was in doubt on July 5th. I mean, maybe we feel confident that we'll be delivered at the last day, at the final judgment. We will be found to be in Christ, receive deliverance. But, but do you, don't you sometimes feel like no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you fight in that battle against sin, don't you sometimes feel like you're still a captive to Satan and his schemes. It's just at this point that we must not think of our lives, of our life as Christians, as followers of Jesus. We must not think of it like July 5th, 
1776, as if there were an outcome that was in doubt. Our status is fundamentally different, and 2 Peter chapter 1 helps us to understand how it's different. So this morning, I want us to, to understand better how we need to think about this new life that we have in Christ, and also what we need to do about it. So how we need to think about it, and how we need to do about it. I want to help you see two bedrock principles here in this text, 2 Peter 1, two bedrock principles of our freedom as Christians. Let me tell you what they are, just from the outset. I'll come back to them, say them again if you don't catch them this time. Number one, first bedrock principle, you have everything you need to enter into God's kingdom. You have everything you need to enter into God's kingdom. And number two, you need to make every effort so that your place in God's kingdom is secure. You need to make every effort so that your place in God's kingdom is secure. Now, do those two statements sound, sound kind of contradictory? It wouldn't surprise me if they do. I can see why you would think that. But they're in the Bible. We're going to see them here in the text this morning. So let me, let me read the text, and I want to ask you to watch for these two bedrock principles as I read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we praise you that we have obtained a faith of equal standing with Peter by Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that grace and peace would be multiplied among us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We pray that you would stir up our hearts to be diligent, to make our calling and election sure, and we re rejoice and thank you that in this way will be richly provided to us an entrance into your kingdom. And we pray that we would hear these truths, believe them, and live, live out the life that they call us to. We pray in these things, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I laid out the first principle. You have everything that you need to enter into Jesus' kingdom. What are these things that you have? I think there are four things that we can see in the first few verses. Four things that we have. Four things that have been given to us. Look with me first at verse 1. Here we see that by faith, you have the same standing before God as Peter himself. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, some of you, I'm sure, have shopped for beef, maybe less as the prices have gotten higher and higher, but you've seen as you go into Costco or wherever you like to shop for beef, different grades of beef, right? And if you're not careful about which grade you're, 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 you're buying, you might wind up paying too much for a piece of meat. Now, the, the categories might be prime or choice or select, or there may be other categories that I'm not aware of. What we need to think about is that our faith is of the identical nature. It gives us the same standing that Peter's had. There's not a difference between your faith and Peter's faith as if, you know, Peter's faith is, is select 
and, or Peter's faith is, I can't remember which one's better and which one's worse. I think prime is the best one, am I right? Prime, and, and, and the pastor's faith is, is choice, and then your faith is select, of a lesser grade. No, your faith has given you an equal standing in the eyes of the Father in union with Christ that Peter himself had. We need to stop thinking that there are, that there are Christians who have better access, who are superior to us, because through faith, we are united to Christ. And it is not the quality or the strength or the, the sort of faith that we have that matters, but it is the object of the faith, the fact that we are trusting in Christ. And it is through union with him that we have access to God. We have access to God in the same way that Peter did. But secondly, we see in verse 2, that by knowing Jesus, you have abundant grace and peace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Now, the obvious question we could ask here is, what, what does it mean to know Jesus? This language appears throughout the book. It comes up again in just a couple of verses. Peter uses two different terms for this word knowledge here in his letter that he's writing to, to the church. One of the words that he's using emphasizes content, okay? So a set of facts that we can comprehend, content knowledge. There's another sort of knowledge that, is, that refers to a personal kind of knowledge, it's that personal knowledge, the word that emphasizes the personal knowledge that he's using here. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. I grew up in northwest Ohio near the home of the astronaut Neil Armstrong, okay, the first man to set foot on the moon. Now, let's say growing up in Ohio history, other classes, science classes, I read up on everything that there is to know about Neil Armstrong. Which kind of knowledge is that? Is that content knowledge or personal knowledge? It's the content knowledge. But I have a friend, his name is Drew. Drew is a retired airline pilot. He flew in the military. Drew flew for Marathon Oil in Northwest Ohio, where its headquarters is for a while. And one of the board members of Marathon Oil was Neil Armstrong. And so one of Drew's jobs was to fly this corporate jet around and pick up the board members to take them to the board meetings. And one of the people that he picked up and flew around was Neil Armstrong. I mean, imagine having the first guy who flew to the moon in the back of your plane. He had a personal knowledge of Neil Armstrong through conversation, through time spent with him, that I could never have. Which one of us, assuming I've mastered all the facts about Neil Armstrong, which one of us knows Neil Armstrong? Well, Drew is the one who has the personal knowledge of Neil Armstrong, the sort of knowledge that I could never possess. That's the sort of knowledge that, that Peter is talking about here when he says that we find grace and peace multiplied to us in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This sort of knowledge is the knowledge that is a product of a, of a, of a relationship. In our case, case, a saving knowledge, a saving relationship that is ours through Christ. Now, some people think, sometimes we think that, that being a Christian means measuring up to God's standard. Maybe believing certain facts, but then committing our lives to live in a certain way so that God will accept us. Sometimes we think that that's what Christianity is living in, in, a, in a sort of way that God will accept us. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're inclined to think that what it means to be a Christian is living in a certain way so that God will accept you, I, I want to encourage you this morning to believe, to, to come to the conviction that that is a hopeless way of gaining access to God. In fact, maybe you've come to the conclusion that you could never be a Christian because you could never measure up to God's standard. You know, you could never live the kind of life that he expects. And I have good news for you this morning, friend. That is not the way anyone gains access to Jesus Christ. That is not the way your pastor, that is not the way any of the leaders of this church, anyone who's followed Jesus faithfully for 40 or 50 years in this congregation, none of them, not myself, none of us have gained, have gained forgiveness with God because of what we have offered to him. It is entirely through a knowledge of Jesus Christ who he is and what he has accomplished for us. The song that we sang earlier is right. Jesus paid it all. There is no payment that you can offer to God to reconcile yourself to him. Jesus paid it all. So if you are not a Christian this morning because you think you could never earn your way into God's favor, that is not the way to earn your way into God's favor. The way to gain favor with God is to admit that you are hopeless. If you think you're hopeless, you're already halfway there. Commit yourself 
to cast all your hope upon Christ. And believers, you do that in your work to follow Jesus as well. All your hope for access to God and favor with Him is yours in Christ. So let there be none of us who would leave this room today thinking that we can gain God's favor or that we could never gain God's favor favor because we can't live that way. May there be none of us who would leave today with anything other than hope in Christ and in Him alone. And if you would like to find out what, more of what that, would like for you, what, what that would look like for you, speak to me or one of the other folks you saw up here at the front. Speak with the person who brought you today because there is hope for us because Jesus has paid it all. That's the point of this text, that there is grace and peace through us, for us through Jesus our Lord. And so we see in verse 3, another one of these four things that we have in Christ. We see that we have that by that power, by the power of the gospel, secured by Christ for us in his death on the cross for us, and validated, vindicated in his resurrection from the grave on the third day, by that power that raised Jesus from the dead, by the power that punished Jesus for our sins, by that power, You have all you need to live a godly life. Look with me at verse 3. His divine power, Jesus' divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through, you see it again here, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, Peter hasn't told us, has he, exactly what these things are yet. He hasn't told us exactly what all these things that pertain to life and godliness is. But his point is clear. Peter is teaching us about the sufficiency of Jesus. What I was just saying about the fact that Jesus paid it all. We receive all we need. We receive all we need to be reconciled to God and all we need to live a godly life in Jesus, through Jesus, from Jesus. In Him, we have everything that we need. How did we get these things? Well, we see it here in verse 3, at the end of the verse, through the knowledge of him who called us. This word knowledge, again, this relational knowledge, this is not just the biographical details about Jesus that we need to memorize. You know, things like his, his birth, the fact that he was both God and man at the same time, his, his death in, 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 in our place for our sins. It's not just the biographical deal, details like the fact that he raised from the dead on the third day and then that and then that weeks later he, he returned to heaven and now sits at the right hand of God. That is not the sort of knowledge that Peter is emphasizing here. We can't have a, a real knowledge of God apart from a knowledge of those things. But what Peter is talking about is this knowledge which is an embrace of the fact that Jesus is our King. A commitment to the fact that Jesus is our Savior, that He is our Lord, that we rightly submit ourselves to Him. And we depend upon him because we have no hope left to our own strength. I may have shared with you briefly my story a few months ago, maybe maybe even years ago at this point. But the story of the difference between memorizing facts about Jesus and a personal commitment to declare allegiance to him, that is at the heart of my story of what it means for me to be a Christian today. I mean, from the time I was as young as the youngest child in this room today, I would have had an understanding of the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life and died a death for his people. And then on the third day, he was raised from the grave. He was God. He was man. He, he brings everything in the Bible together. I would have understood that. And if you'd asked me if I believed that it was true, I would, I would have said yes. But what was I devoted to in my heart? I was devoted to myself. And I won't go into all the details, but the pride, and it was ugly. It was filthy in my my own heart. I was concerned not with with pointing pointing people to Jesus through my life, but in pointing people's attention to me, in crafting my image so that people would think well of me. And so ultimately, the image that I had crafted of myself in a horribly distorted way became an obstacle to me being converted. It became an obstacle to me being, being saved because I was afraid that if I admitted that I'd, that I'd been a fraud, that I'd been living a lie for 15 or more years. I was afraid that people would think less of me because I admitted that I was a fraud. So in one sense, I was, I was, willing, to, I was willing to live in fear of hell 
the sake of my image, retaining the image that I had created. I believed the facts. I had the knowledge. But I did not have this personal knowledge. I had not submitted myself, devoted myself to yield from my rebellion against him and my devotion to myself. To yield that, to repent of it, and devote myself to him. So friend, you may have professed faith in Jesus one year or 10 years or 50 years ago. But if your knowledge of Jesus is simply a factual knowledge, but not a knowledge of relationship through, through fully committed hope in who He is for you and the fact that He has created you, not for yourself but for Him, then I would call on you as well this morning to repent of your rebellion and your self-centeredness. To find hope in Christ alone. You will not regret you will not regret bearing your heart, your soul to your brothers and sisters. Your brothers and sisters in this congregation, they grasp the gospel and all of our hopelessness enough to rejoice, to rejoice in your humble admission that your life has been a fraud and to rejoice with you as you would publicly profess that truth and commit yourself to Jesus from today forward. But we have a fourth thing from Jesus that we see in this passage. Since we have this relationship, since we have all things that come with it, well, now we have a mission entrusted us. So by God's own character, we have promises that we will successfully finish our mission. Look with me at verse 4. By which, okay, pointing back to verse 3, we'll come back to that in a minute. By His own glory and excellence, He has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. By God's own character, you have promises that you will successfully finish your mission. The promises point to the future. As we keep reading through the book of Second Peter, we see that these promises are pointing us towards the fact that Christ is coming and that Christ it will, will usher us into a new heavens and a new earth, into God's kingdom. God's kingdom is, the, is, the, the, is God's realm. It is God's rule in which He gathers all His people who are reconciled to Him through Jesus' blood. He gathers all people under His good reign, actually to share in His reign, in His family, in close proximity to, to, in close proximity to Him. That's why we read at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, that we are with Him. And he wipes away every tear from our eyes. If you keep reading in chapter 2, you see more about these promises. So you see in the context that Peter's writing to in what's today, present-day, northern Turkey. But in this, in, in this area, was no, in, in this age, was no, known uh, by other terms. Peter's writing to a collection of churches in, in what's today, northern Turkey, telling them that though they see wickedness around them, though there is false teaching that is rampant around them, that they know the end of the story, that they are, to borrow a phrase, that the believers in that area are on the right side of history because the way the story of the world ends is that God saves his people. He saves them out of a midst of a judgment that he is bringing upon all the unrighteousness and wickedness of the world. And we can take heart in that. We can take heart in the fact that we know the end of the story as well. We know that we are on the right side of history. Chapter 2 shows us this distinction between salvation and judgment. And chapter 3 encourages, encourages us to be patient. Look with me just over a page at chapter 3, verse 13. According to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That new heavens and new earth is ours. It will be our dwelling place with Jesus forever. But now, what are we doing? We are waiting for it. There's encouragement earlier in, the, in chapter 3 that with God, a day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. I can't tell you all that that means. But what it most surely means is that though it may feel like, though it may feel like Jesus is delaying His coming and we are experiencing greater likelihood of suffering, that, that the, the likelihood, the increasing likelihood of suffering cannot shake the, the security the surety of Jesus' promises to his people. 
So here in verse 4, we see how these things have already been granted us. Do you see this? The promises point to the future, but our experience of those promises has already begun. We have already escaped, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There was a new child. They have two children now born to, born to um, the children of Prince Charles. There's a Prince George of England, the son of William, the son of Charles, the son of Elizabeth. And this little child, Prince George of England, does not yet have a, have a throne. But he is promised to inherit that throne. And make no mistake, that little boy is already inheriting a life of privilege. He may not yet be sitting on a throne as king, but he has already begun to exper- experience the benefits of his royal lineage. And that is who you are in Christ. You have a royal lineage. And though we have not yet experienced the fullness of the benefits of union with Christ, we surely experience the benefits already. What does this mean for us? You know, all these things we have, what's the significance of all these things? So what? I believe it points us to some lies that we may be inclined to believe, but lies that we must not believe. Let me give you a few examples. Have you ever been inclined to believe the lie that you're hopeless? The lie that it is, it's too hard for you to change or too late for you to change? You know, the old, you can't teach an old, old dog new tricks thing? If this passage is true, and I'm arguing that it is, and I don't think you need merely me to say that it's true, this is God's Word spoken through the Apostle Peter. And if that's true... And if you believe that it's true, you do not have the freedom to believe that you are hopeless. If you think you're hopeless, you are saying that God is not faithful to his word. You're saying that Jesus will not keep his promises. Is that what you want to say? Another lie might be that you're the exception. You know, I'm the exception. All these other people around me, they they have these things in Christ. They have hope. They have security. They have the promise of eternal life. They have a promise of of change, of of victory over sin in this life, but not me. I'm a hard case. You know, I'm too tough a nut to crack. Well, how arrogant is that for us to think that, that we are so bad that even Jesus cannot overcome our wickedness? I mean, aren't we in a twisted way thinking of ourselves as God at that point? that we are a God because we are so set in our wickedness that even the one we think is God is not strong enough to defeat the, uh, the slavery to sin that we still seem to experience? We do not have the right to say that we are the exception, that we alone are hopeless. Another lie is that God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, you know, right? God helps those who help themselves. Not anywhere between these two covers of Scripture. The gospel is the fact that God helps those who are helpless. God helps those who are hopeless. And it's because of that, not because of what we can offer to God. We have hope. Another lie might be that how I live doesn't matter. How I live doesn't matter. Sometimes there there are teachers, even preachers, who arise who would suggest that Hey, you know, because we have the gospel, because Jesus has died for us and secured our place in God's family, we can live however we want. This seems to be what Paul is anticipating and responding to at the beginning of Romans 6. I'm not going to take you there. You can look and see how Paul says, you know, should we, should we keep on sinning the, then so that there will be more and more grace, so that the grace will abound? Paul says, no, 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 no. We cannot draw this, that conclusion. How can those who are set free from sin continue in it? We must not conclude that how we live does not matter. We'll see exactly how it does matter in just a moment. So you have these promises. But what's the ultimate purpose of these promises? What are these promises intending to accomplish? And you might think, well, they're intended to accomplish our salvation. And I would say that's true. They're good news for us. They give us hope. But look at verse 4. You see that phrase in there that we are 
partakers of the divine nature. So through God's promises, we share. We share in the divine nature. Does that mean that God infuses, you know, He injects some of His, some of his godness into us so that we become gods ourselves? That's what some religious groups believe. But no, that's, that's not what Peter is describing here. Look back at verse 3. You see there at the end of the verse how Jesus has called us to His own glory and excellence. Now, maybe some of your translations will, will have the word by. He's called us by His own glory and excellence. The word there can be translated either way. It could mean either thing, just in, the, in what the word means. But I think that to His own glory and excellence is a better translation in this context. Because this, this passage is pointing us to the fact that God is calling us to, in the sense of to display His own glory and excellence. When He comes on later in verse 4 and says that we've become partakers of the divine nature, that's what He's saying. We share in His nature. He has called us to display what He is like. And this should not surprise us. Where do we first see in the Bible that God has made us to display His glory? His, can I say, image? It's right there in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2. God created us in His image. And then He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and spread throughout all the earth. That wasn't just so they could you know, take nice pictures and post them to Instagram of what the rest of the earth looked like. God's purpose in creating image bearers and intending to fill the earth with them was so that the whole earth would be filled with what? His image. He created mankind. He created us to be little mirrors all over the world, filling the earth with pictures of what He is like. We know from Genesis 3 about how mankind has twisted that image. But Christ has restored that image, and as we are united to Christ, that image is repaired in us so that now it is our mission to continue to call on people to follow Jesus and to spread out all over the world, to fill the world with the image of God Himself. And that is our mission. Your life is about more than you. There are benefits glorious benefits for you in the gospel. But your life is about more than that. The glorious benefits of the gospel to you ultimately reverberate for the sake of the name of Jesus so that he might be worshipped everywhere that, he, that, worshiped, that everywhere that Jesus is due worship throughout all his creation. I fear that Western Christianity has failed to cultivate this sense of mission haven't we grown accustomed to living as if our lives are for us? As if our lives are about our possessions and our comfort and our ease, and maybe particularly in a rich country like the United States and a rich state like Texas and a rich city like Austin, maybe we are particularly tempted towards that, towards that mindset. I mean, some people think this is why so many Western young people are inclined to join ISIS. Some people have written that it's because of the, the emptiness of Western culture apart from a consumerism, a me-centeredness. Some people argue that it's because of the lack of purpose, meaning in, in young people's lives that they are drawn to a cause like ISIS that has a mission. But how much greater is the mission that has been entrusted to us by not a caliphate, not a, a, a religion whose leader is in the grave, but by Jesus Christ, who is alive and is our king and will reign over every piece of territory that every human being claims for himself today or claims for a false prophet. It is his, and that is who you serve. And he is the one who has sent us on a mission to proclaim his name, Declare the gospel and to live lives that reflect his character. You have everything you need to accomplish your mission and enter God's kingdom. But you also need to make every effort. You need to make every effort so that your place in God's kingdom is secure. Where am I seeing that? Look with me at verse 5. For this very reason, okay? For this very reason, because of everything that you have in Christ... 
for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. We'll go on in just a moment, but let me drive home this point right now. Because you are free, because you have everything that you need, life and godliness, because you are on God's mission and He has equipped you to fulfill that mission, because of all these things, now make every effort. Our mission will not be easy. Our mission of reflecting God's character, of sharing in the divine nature, it requires effort on our part. Let me read through verses, uh, verses 5 and 6. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, I don't think that this is a step-by-step recipe, you know, add faith and then stir in some virtue and then a sprinkle of a sprinkle of knowledge. It's not as if we add these in sequential order. You know, it's not as if we get down to the end, love is at the end. Okay, let's hold off on loving each other until we have all the other things here, right? That's not what Peter's saying. This is a common list. It's the sort of list that would have been common in the first century. The important thing that we need to take away from the order of this list is that in these first century lists, the kind of list that Peter's writing, the last thing is the most important one. What's at the end of the list? Love. Okay, so if we're to make something from the order here, it's the fact that love holds the place of emphasis. Aside from that, Peter is saying, this is what you need to make every effort to cultivate in your lives. I won't spend a great deal of time explaining every one of these things. I want to ask you to do me a favor, though. Imagine a way that you struggle to overcome sin in your life. If you think of a way that you, in particular, struggle with sin, it might be pride, lust, your words, uh, in, in the form of gossip or harshness. It might be anger. It might be your desire for, the, for money or the way that you use money or a host of other things. Think about that particular struggle that you have in your life. Faith, faith, is, faith leads you to fight to do right because you believe that God will keep His promises and the fight will be worth it in the end, even if it feels painful in the moment. That's what faith is. Virtue, virtue is the, the sort of strength, the internal strength, the moral excellence that will overwhelm your impulse to sin. Knowledge, this is, this is the, the content kind of knowledge here. Knowledge is an understanding of the situation and an, and an understanding of God's will so that you can discern what the right thing is to do in complicated ethical circumstances. Some of you are facing these in the workplace right now as you see the world changing around you. There are difficult circumstances. Knowledge is the discernment that, that enables you to distinguish between, between the right and wrong options. Self-control is a, a cultivated, trained, internal resistance to indulging yourself. Godliness, or sorry, steadfastness is next. This is probably the least familiar word in this list. Uh, maybe a better word would be endurance. It's the endurance to keep on fighting even after failure. It's persistence. It's a commitment to finish well, not to give up even if there's failure in the past. Godliness is doing right for the right reasons. It gets to our motives. Doing right because we are devoted to God. Brotherly affection emphasizes our love for, for fellow believers. Acting in light of, of the effects that our victory or our defeat might have on one another. How might your sin affect brothers and sisters in Christ in this church? All sorts of ways. And then love is ultimately acting in the best interests of another. Acting in the best interests of another even at some cost to you, and ultimately you are acting in the best interest of the one who has loved you most, God himself. I want you to notice here, back in verse 5, make every effort. We come down here to the end and we see love. How does the world define love? You know, it's a feeling. It's an impulse. It's a natural attraction that we have towards a person or thing. What is Peter telling us about love? Peter's telling us that love requires effort. It is not simply just what you feel rising up from your gut, from your heart, from your emotions. It is, a, it is a commitment to fix your affections on what is worthy of love. We use words like 
when, when, when people use words like I love you, they mean things like you please me or you satisfy me or I want you. Love in God's word means that I am committed to serve you, to seek what is good for you. Focus is external, not internal. But now what does it mean if these, if these qualities are not in your life? What are the implications? Peter gives us a hint in verse 9 when he says that whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. There's a nearsightedness that leads ultimately to blindness. We could, we could, call, what, uh, we could call this forgetfulness, amnesia. You know, it's as if you've forgotten what you've learned in the past and you can't see what is, what's ahead. Imagine that as you're boarding a plane, you find out that your pilot is suffering from amnesia and he can't remember how to fly. And what's more, he's blind and can't see where he's going. You're not going to step on board that airplane, right? This is what you are if you are not cultivating these qualities that reflect the image of God. Without these qualities... You're headed for a disaster, just like that airplane you'd never step onto. What are some of the benefits? What are some some of the benefits to you if these qualities are present? Well, look at verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will not fail in your mission if these qualities are increasing in you. At the end of verse 10, we read that, that if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You will not stumble and fall on your journey, the journey towards the new heavens and the new earth, the journey of the mission that Jesus has entrusted to you. And then in verse 11, we see that in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So do you see what Peter's explaining here? He's saying, he's saying, that the only people who enter Jesus' kingdom are the people who live like his people now. You see that? For in this way, by practicing these qualities, at the end of verse 10, then he says in the beginning of verse 11, in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of Jesus. Now, notice, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that you or I, any of us, that we become Jesus' people by obeying Him. I am not arguing, neither is Peter, that we become Jesus' people by living like Jesus. That is not the gospel. That's the anti-gospel that I talked about earlier. What Peter is saying is that those who have been cleansed by the gospel, those who have been changed by the gospel, are inevitably, without exception, transformed by the gospel. Those who have been cleansed by the gospel are changed by the gospel. That's how verse 10 makes sense. Look at the beginning of verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. You know, make every effort. Be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Calling and election is something that God does, right? God has called. God has elected. And yet, it, it, it is upon us to make this calling and election sure by living, living like the people that God has made us to be. By living out the reality that we have everything that we need. What's the alternative? Well, look over with me, maybe just a page in chapter 2. Look with me at verse 19. False teachers, some teachers, to give you the background here, they promise them, they promise people freedom. Freedom, we've talked about that, right? They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. But get this, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. But the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit 
And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. And there is much that we could say about that passage. At the very least, what we have to say is that there is grave danger for those who would claim a transforming experience with Jesus Christ, but then would fail to live it out. It is in this way that entrance into the eternal kingdom of Jesus is provided for us. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about here. 200 years ago this past January, the, the Battle of New Orleans at the end of the War of 1812 was fought. Okay, the War of 1812 really ended in 1815. I can't explain that exactly, why it's called the War of 1812, but stick with me. There was a treaty that was agreed to in December of 1814, but that treaty was not formally ratified until later in, in 1815. So the battles continued, and there was a battle in New Orleans in January of 1815 in which people lost their lives. The outcome of the war was decided, all but the final you know, ratification, the, 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 the process of it being affirmed. But it was settled. The war would be over. The outcome of the war would be secure. People lost their lives in that battle. There's a bit of an analogy for us today because this is what real Christianity will be like. This is what real Christians will be like. These qualities do not earn you a ticket into Jesus' kingdom. But nobody gets in without them. You are fighting in a war, in your war against sin. You're fighting in a war that has already been won. The outcome is decided, but if you don't fight in this battle, you will die. There is hope, and there is grave warning in Peter's words here in, in, in chapter 1. But the good news is that the only reason you can fight this battle is that Jesus has given you everything you need. Can you see what promises we have in Jesus? We have been thoroughly equipped for the battle that we now need to fight. Jesus, in his death, has secured our freedom and our righteousness and our forgiveness. And his, in his resurrection, he has given us hope and confidence in his kingdom and that we will share in that kingdom. C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia, specifically in the book The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, has painted a picture for us that is more vivid than anything I could offer you in my own words. This is a longer section that I'd usually read. Because of its beauty, let me close with this. There's a story in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader about a boy named Eustace. He's a punk. He's a brat. He's the kind of kid you read about in the story, and you know that sooner or later in the story, he's going to get what's coming to him. And you're looking forward to it. You can't wait for that moment to arrive when it's his. Well, to make a long story short, in this book, his foul character has turned him into a dragon. He's miserable. He wants to escape, but he's imprisoned in his dragonness. But Aslan arrives, the lion who is the picture of Christ himself. Aslan leads Eustace, the dragon, to a place where he can wash. But Aslan tells him that he'll need to undress. And Eustace realizes that Aslan is talking about his need to undress himself from his own skin. He would need to take his skin off. And so this is what C.S. Lewis says. With his new claws, Eustace begins tearing at his dragon skin. He peels off one layer only to discover another nasty, scaly, rough layer underneath. And then another. And after three layers, he realizes that it's vain. He will never make himself clean or get rid of his pain or shed the nasty skin. You will have to let me undress you, says Aslan the lion. So desperate was Eustace. Even his fear of Aslan's claws was not enough to stop him from laying down flat on his back, laying anxious on the ground. Here's what he felt. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as though I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but 
only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. You can't get that freedom by scraping yourself clean. Only God can do it. Only Jesus can tear away the flesh. And, and it might hurt, but he's provided you with everything you need. But once you're clean, Fight not to live like that dragon anymore. As Lewis goes on, it would be nice and fairly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly a- accurate, he began to be he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. You have, brothers and sisters, everything you need to enter God's kingdom. And and you have it because Jesus has given it to you. He's given you himself. But you need to make every effort so that your place in God's kingdom is secure. In this way, in this way through both resting and wrestling, there will be provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we praise you that this hope is secure. We praise you that your promises are ours. We praise you that you have staked your own name upon your promises to us and that they will come true. And yet, Father, we struggle to believe these promises. We would affirm them, perhaps, but It is so hard in our lives to live as if we believe them, moment after moment. We thank you. We thank you that your work is sufficient, and we pray that your spirit would stir us up to make every effort. And we pray that you would soon bring us home to your eternal kingdom when you dwell with your people. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. One of the ways in which we respond to this message from God's Word is to praise God.